Austin, and thanks for joining me, by the way. This is Charles Moskowitz, Monday through Friday. And uh, Chuck Chrismeyer is my guest. He's the author of King of the Mountain. He's, a, he's an attorney. He's a minister. Um, he's a great speaker. And um, Chris, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Well, it's, uh, it's my privilege and delight, Chuck. Chris, let's first of all hold up your book for my viewers, and let's just talk a little bit about the thesis of this book. Obviously, you have on the cover there a right. picture of the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, which yeah. is the site of the of the ancient uh, first and second temples uh, of of Israel. So that let's let's start at that vantage point. Yeah, it's uh, King of the Mountain. That's the title of the book, The Eternal Epic End Time Battle. And uh, the premise of the book uh, is based upon a, uh, a childhood game, uh, Chuck, that probably you have played and 99% of all males on the planet have played. It's called King of the Mountain or King of the Hill. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a couple of guys get together and there's a little mound of snow or dirt or whatever it happens to be. And uh, the idea is you're trying to get on top and stay on top, and the others around you are trying to pull you down so that they can become king of the hill or king of the mountain. Well, it's amazing because one day, all of a sudden, it was as if God spoke to me directly about this and says, that is how to understand all of biblical prophecy and the future. And uh, to understand the, the ancient prophets, uh, the words of the, uh, the New Testament, uh, going back even before uh, the creation with the battle that the Bible descri uh, describes as the battle between Satan and God, who was then, uh, Satan was then called Lucifer, uh, on the, and, and he was cast out of the mountain of God in the heavens and uh, declared, then I will be like the Most High God. I will be ascend to the heights of the north, which is a reference to uh, the Temple Mount. And so uh, the, the overall picture then is that the entire panoply of human history and biblical prophecy is focusing now on what is about to take place and that is the final battle or the movement of the nations, the peoples of this planet and their leaders to position themselves to become king of the mountain as if they were kids trying to ascend to a little mound. But in this case, it's the Temple Mount, the most priceless 37 uh, acres of real estate on the planet. And uh, it is deemed to be the spiritual and a political stronghold or essence of all dominion on this planet. And the leaders of our world know that, they believe that, and uh, so things are moving very rapidly in that direction. Now, um, I come at this um, issue from a Jewish perspective. Sure. Um, by the way, uh, Chuck, the yeah. uh, first third of my book is, is strictly from a Jewish perspective. Well, but Christianity has embraced the Jewish perspective by embracing what you call the Old Testament, what we call the Torah and the Tanakh, right. and, and all of its moral and ethical precepts. And that includes um, end-time scenarios, which uh, a lot of Jews don't like to talk about, but it's all there 
in in several of the prophets, particularly Daniel and Joel and 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 other Isaiah. prophets. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah. Sure, it's all there. It it is all there, and um, I my understanding is that according to uh, both uh, Old Testament uh, prophecy and certainly according to um, normative understandings of Judaism, both Torah and Talmud, and also we share with a Christian understanding, and I would even add a Muslim understanding, because this is in the Quran as well, that in order for this scenario to take place, where you have the advent of the Messianic age, however that comes about, the, uh, the children, the people of the book, as, as, as Muslims call us, uh, the, the people of the covenant, as mm -hmm. we consider ourselves and as I think Christians view us, right. must take possession of that tiny little swath of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River that True. God commanded Abraham to go to, and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and that the Jewish people of the Judeans, right. um, after the Persians, have continued to struggle to possess. Well, God they, gave an eternal leasehold uh, to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, on that land, yet God calls it his land. So he gave an eternal leasehold or possession to uh, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right, and, and by physical descendants... I want to be clear, that doesn't necessarily mean literally biological descendants because, um, you know, that's part of it. But throughout the Torah, you have people who enter into the covenantal relationship who are not direct descendants. Right. Um, and then you have people who are direct descendants who leave the covenant. So, you know, it, it's more of a, a covenantal relationship, a, a sort of a, a pact. I mean, and that Jesus of Nazareth recognized the eternal aspect of the covenant of i think i mean people dispute this but i think he recognized of all the covenants whether it be the noahide covenant or the mosaic covenant or the davidic covenant mm -hmm. that that all of these covenants are forever and that jesus as christ capped the covenant by fulfilling it according to christian doctrine that's correct but but correct. E either way the, the both covenantal faiths, and uh, I don't want to get into a discussion of like the dual covenant, which I happen to adhere to, but that's more of a religious question. Right. But either, either way, the, the idea is that once the children of Israel, the Judeans, the people who have perpetually adhered to or at least acknowledged and tried to live under this covenant from the time of Abraham up until today without any interruption— that they take possession of this tiny land and, and become independent, which they did in 1948, that this is setting the stage for the coming of the Mashiach, whether it be a second coming or a first coming. Agreed. I mean, it's an old joke in Israel that um, when, when the Mashiach ascends to the top of the Mount of Olives, the Israelis are going to send out a little delegation, you know, very Israeli, you know, with their open shirts and they're kind of casual. And they're going to welcome him and shake his hand and say, we want to welcome you to our country. Is this your first visit or is this a return visit? Right? And at that time, we'll finally get 
resolution about this question. But either way, we all recognize that this miraculous event, we all pray that this miraculous event occurs and that it occurs in our time. Isn't it interesting, Chuck, that in the last 20 years, uh, there has been a growing, uh, what uh, the Jerusalem Post and the Arut uh, Sheva uh, Israel National News have called recently a messianic fervor uh, growing in uh, Israel, such that uh, about 70% now, even of seculars, are anticipating, believing that this is what you might call broadly the messianic era, but that leaves, is open to a lot of definition as to what that really means. Does it mean the coming of Mashiach? Does it mean uh, Takun Olam, uh, you know, the redemption of the world through good works? Uh, but the expectation is this is that moment in time. And because of that, Jerusalem has been the increasing focus of the world but now the focus has moved from Jerusalem to the Temple Mount, which is the very place where Hashem, God, uh, called Abraham uh, to a specific mountain, a specific place, uh, Mount Moriah, where he was to offer up his only son. And uh, so we have the most amazing history there uh, with the Jewish people, with the Hebrew people, and uh, now we're at the stage of history where the prophecy of uh, in Psalm 2, which is an astounding prophecy in just uh, half a dozen verses, uh, is coming true. Why do the heathen or the nations rage and the people imagine a vain and foolish things? The kings of the earth are setting themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, his anointed in this case being Israel. Isaiah made that very clear. And so the nations are setting themselves against both the Lord and against Israel, saying, let's tear their bands asunder, and God is going to have them in derision. He's going to laugh at them because he says, I have set my king on my holy hill. He says, I've already set my king on my holy hill. In other words, he's speaking a thousand years uh, is the same as a day with God. I've already done that. I'm God. I've already declared that. The Mashiach is going to sit on my holy hill. And so the rest of you guys, you nations, better get your act in order and submit yourselves, or it's not going to be a pretty picture. I'm just giving a, a wrap-up to the rest of that psalm. That's where we are right now. Fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed to think that um, there is a movement like that today in, in Israel. Um, I think that um, perhaps there's a slight difference between the Jewish understanding of Messiah and the Christian, or I would say probably more the the Protestant understanding of Messiah. Uh -huh. um, maybe our, our view is a little bit more consistent with Catholicism, but the idea is that we do believe that, um, that we, are a, we are a religion of works. I mean, we, we believe that in the one God of which there's no other, and, and no, we worship no other God but, but Hashem. Right. Um, but we also believe in the 
elevation of our holiness in order to make this happen. We have to do that both through good works, through mitzvahs, but also through observance. And, um, you know, those, those laws and, um, and, and moral and ethical precepts are laid out in pretty unambiguous terms in the Torah. Right. And, and the rabbis who are, are legitimate rabbis, who are Torah true rabbis, will try to interpret those things so we can understand them. And I think that if there is a movement in Israel today to bring about the Messiah, my only concern is that they understand that it just doesn't happen out of thin air. They well, have to true. prepare nope. themselves. They have to become holier. And yeah. obviously, I, I, I hasten to point out as well that there is a gross misinterpretation of the messianic idea among communist Jews. Let's just call them what they are. And uh -huh. communist non-Jews, which is this idea that you don't need God, you, that man can bring about the Messiah through force force right. of arms. I mean, this is the sin of the Garden of Eden. This was the sure. temptation that the serpent offered Eve, and the serpent represents the satanic force by saying, you can be as God. In other words, you can overthrow God in heaven because you can have all knowledge. There's no more mystery. You can know the secrets of the universe just right. by partaking of the forbidden fruit. And then when she involved Adam in that, it became a conspiracy against God. And, you know, um, and that conspiracy is, is continuing to eat away at the foundations of yeah. Judaism and Christianity. And unfortunately, it's made a lot of inroads in Judaism. So well, that worries me. Well, it's made a lot of inroads even in, uh, among professing Christians. Yeah. And uh, oh, yeah. what's, what's happening now uh, in the Western world is the merging together of New Age spirituality on the... Uh, the religious side, plus the uh, pursuit of globalism on the political and economic side. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the reason why, Chuck, why our current president was so resisted, uh, so hated by the entire Democratic Party and also by many uh, of the so-called elitist Republicans, because they felt they believed that they had set things up for the new world order, the new global order to be put into place. And uh, uh, Donald Trump came through and he said, no, I wasn't elected to be the president of the world. I was elected to be the president of the United States. And so we're going to focus on restoring the sovereignty of the United States and we're not going to play the global game. They hated him for that, and that's why they're trying to get rid of it. Yes, uh, couldn't agree more. Okay, now you put that in, in perspective, so what we're looking at now is, on the one hand, one of the key players in this battle for King of the Mountain, again, the book King of the Mountain, uh, one of the key players is this rising Western New World Order that is amalgamating, it was being put in position. On the other hand, there are other major players, and here are some of those other major players. One of them, believe it or not, is the Vatican. 
Now, I'm not talking about individual Roman Catholic persons. I'm talking about a, uh, the Vatican, which is a geopolitical power. In fact, some believe that it's the most powerful uh, uh, force on the planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Pope himself has declared, the, the papacy has declared that it already is the ruler of the world, and they intend to rule the world from the Temple Mount. That's the reason why, in the last 20 years, the Vatican has been uh, glomming together all of the key sites uh, where Yeshua traveled and so on, there on the Temple Mount, including the city of David, Mount Zion, and including the very place of the so-called Last Supper. The purpose is to position the papacy for the final declaration that we are the ones that are to rule uh, Jerusalem and to rule uh, from Mount Zion. Now, in order to do that, uh, they had to somehow curry the favor with Israel. So it was not until, what was it, 1990, that uh, the Vatican established diplomatic relations with Israel. Now, there is a do do between Israel and uh, the Palestinians and the Muslim world in order to curry their favor. The same is true with regard to China. And so, most recent event with the Vatican going to China and uh, allowing, in fact, encouraging China to appoint what was it, seven bishops of the so-called Roman Catholic Church in China. Right. China is 1.4 billion people, and in order for the Vatican to be able to declare itself the power entitled to rule from the Temple Mount, it must have the favor, uh, the geopolitical favor, of all of these nations. Now, in addition to that, you've got Russia. Russia, believe it or not, uh, with uh, Vladimir Putin having a 78% approval rating there, shocking, but it is true, there are many in Russia who believe that Vladimir Putin is ordained by God to usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Wow. Now, let me me tell you, uh, this is not just an idle thought that they have. It goes back to a prophecy 1,500 years ago, when the, uh, uh, the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church, was, was ensconced in Rome, and its uh, power and center was transferred to the Byzantium Empire and Constantinople. Mm-hmm was there for hundreds of years until the Muslims came in and destroyed Constantinople. And from there, the locus of what is what would be called the conservative, true biblical Roman Catholic Church shifted from Constantinople to Moscow. Could I just intervene? Let me just intervene here for a second. Um, And I, I don't know a lot about Vatican politics, but I know that, um, first of all, the Israelis, I don't think, are going to permit the Vatican to take over Jerusalem. I mean, that's just a 
Maybe they already a... have in many in many respects. Already have because they want to curry favor with the Vatican. Maybe, but they're still not going to Israel, and the Jewish people are going to retain sovereignty over Jerusalem. I also uh, think that the... that is true. All right, all right. Uh, let, let, let me also point out that I think that the business of China appointing Catholic bishops, I mean, again, I don't know a lot about Catholic politics, but it seems to me as an outsider that that was a setback for the Catholic Church because let's not forget that in the Middle Ages, I mean, the, they fought wars to ensure that the Vatican would only have the sole power of appointing bishops. I mean, there's a word for it in Latin that I don't know right now. Well, that's but, precisely uh, what By I'm giving the at. communist Chinese the ability to appoint bishops, I mean, this is, in a sense, a concession and a loss for power because these are going to be communist-controlled bishops. They're not going to be controlled that's by true. the Vatican. But you have to look at this through the bigger-picture eyes of what the Vatican intends to accomplish and yes they're willing to give up some of that power and authority in order to curry favor with 1.4 billion people and a government uh, in China that's already declared that by 2030 they intend to rule the world the other fact the other little point of historical contention I may raise here is that um, the church had a schism my understanding, and this is conventional wisdom, with the Eastern Rite and, and with, with Constantinople. I mean, so they didn't move, the Vatican and the Roman Catholic locusts didn't move to Constantinople. It stayed well, Rome. That's true. It was the, they, in fact, those that moved to Constantinople were those that believed that the Roman Catholic Church itself was in apostasy. Right. So, so, the, so there was a schism, the first schism in Christianity, and then the second big one was Martin Luther. But um, I don't think that the Catholic Church, I mean, again, I'm not an expert here, but I don't think that they controlled the Eastern Rite, and I certainly don't think they controlled Luther and the Protestant movement. True. They don't. In fact, uh, uh, the Pope was seeking to reunite the Orthodox churches, including the Russian Orthodox Church, and they declined. Exactly, and I think that since the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russian Orthodox Church has undergone a process by which they're getting rid of their communist-controlled bishops, and they're returning to Christian faith, All at right, least but in that's general. that's not all that they're doing. What, see, you have to look at the bigger picture here. The bigger picture is that the Russian Orthodox Church now has gotten rid not just of communists, has gotten rid, uh, most recently, of uh, Protestants, has gotten rid of many uh, other churches that were there in Russia because they have now entered into a oneness with Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin. Okay. Sharing power. And this is how all of these things, uh, Chuck, are coming to pass. It is the merging of religious power and political power with Russia, uh, with the Muslim world, Iran, with Turkey. You see, 
uh, Iran once ruled the world under the name Persia. Turkey once ruled the then known world under the name the Ottoman Empire. Each one of them now sees themselves as heading up the ultimate caliphate of history mm. to rule the world. They are in opposition to one another, but right. they can't accomplish this by themselves and they know it. Russia cannot accomplish its purpose by itself. And so each one of them, like in the childhood game, where two or three friends will band together to pull down the guy that's on top. This is what's happening on the international order. Brilliant. And, oh, yeah. No, this it, is a great analysis, and it's a competing, it's competing between many different forces that include both so secular and religious aspects. When you read the book, King of the Mountain, you are, your, your mouth is going to be aghast. Mm -hmm. uh, and then mixed so into the, and, and thrown into the mix, of course, is Communist China and, yep. the, uh, and the United States, which is a, it's just a Protestant country, which is a secular Christian nation. And I say right. Christian with a small c. Um, right. <laughs> and then Israel, which is a tiny little country uh, that, that, that is the purview of the Jews. So you've exactly. got all these forces. You've got a rise in Africa of, of wealth and independence. Right. I mean, I think that there's a difference between, in, in, in a way, the Eastern Orthodox and Catholicism, in that the Eastern Orthodox were much more authoritarian in nature. I mean, the Byzantine Empire was very authoritarian, very mm -hmm. singular. There was no separation of church and state. There right. was there was an absolute rule, and I think the Russians embraced that when they became Orthodox as opposed to Catholic. But the Catholic system actually is a lot more, I would argue, progressive in the real sense, in that they believe in the concept of subsidiarity. It's not the Pope is not an absolute king. The Pope has to answer within the Church to, you know, the the much more autonomous bishops around the world, but also they they don't, you know, they operate alongside but not in control of Catholic kings and Catholic governments, and that the Protestants even took that a step further, whereas the the different Protestant sects became state organs of each of their own respective nations. So right, I think that the West has, from a religious standpoint, has moved away from this kind of authoritarianism, which was reborn in the West in the form of communism and during the French Revolution. So, you know, and that was anti-Christian, anti-religious. Well, I'm so glad that you brought up the French Revolution because the French Revolution was a type of the end of the age, of the end times. You had with the French Revolution what was called the terror. Right. During the terror, uh, it was terrible. Uh, you know, Charles Dickens wrote about this in his Tale of Two Cities. Uh, but then that was not the most terrible thing. The most terrible thing was what is called the Great Terror. The Bible talks about this, at least uh, in the New Testament. It talks about a great tribulation. Now, a lot of people are uh, mix it up and they call this uh, period of time referred to as the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period, a period of seven years. That's not biblical. 
There is no such thing as what is called the tribulation, a period of seven years. It is a period of about three and a half years called the Great Tribulation, which emulates what happened in the French Revolution with the Great Terror. So the French Revolution was very much like what we are about to experience in our world. The French Revolution was born out of a rebellion against uh, God, against faith, against family, against all authority. The new revolution that is rising up is just like that. The spirit of globalism is rising up to dispel God and raise up man and man's government as the ultimate uh, utopian savior of the world. And it's in that context that we find this ultimate battle of King of the Mountain taking place because the deceiver, Satan, formerly in heaven called Lucifer, uh, has declared, I'm going to be like the Most High God. I am going to ascend to the heights of the north. But he can't do that because he's a spirit being. The only way he can do that is by investing himself Uh, I hate to use the word incarnate, but to to invest himself in a human being and in powers on this earth. So ultimately what he is after is to place his counterfeit Messiah on the Holy Mount in Jerusalem and declare himself God. He He will assist, I believe, He will assist in the rebuilding of a temple. This is going to be a geopolitical coup that looks religious. The new Sanhedrin that came together for the first time in 1900 some years in 2004 set uh, the goal of rebuilding the temple. That was their number one purpose. And uh, now what they're doing, they have sent out a letter to 70 nations declaring that if you want to have peace on earth, you Gentiles must help us rebuild the temple. It will be the only possible way to gain peace on earth. Ultimately, Chuck, I am convinced that that is the fulcrum issue The one thing that will speak so profoundly to the Jewish mind and heart because their identity, even for seculars, is largely wrapped up in the temple. And so that will be the turning point or the fulcrum over which some kind of a peace agreement is going to be reached that the prophet Isaiah warned about in Isaiah 28, he warned about, uh, well, God, Hashem, warned uh, Israel through uh, Isaiah, saying, look, you're going to enter into a covenant with death. You're going to enter into a covenant because you're not trusting me, you have forsaken me, 
You're going to trust the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. You're going to trust the power brokers of this earth. You would rather put your hope in them than you would in me. And because of that, you're going to enter into a covenant. I, as your husband, am going to disannul that covenant, but you're going to incur horrific penalty as a result of entering into that covenant. This is all part of this unbelievable end time move right now for the battle for king of the mountain chuck well i mean I, i've got a lot of questions about this firstly uh, i think that the jewish people are wary about messianic movements i mean we underwent a very very destructive messianic movement in the 15th century one that actually almost destroyed Judaism and very well may have destroyed much of Judaism. Um, and that was the false Messiah, Shabtai Zvi. Um, mm. It's a big subject that I could get into at another time. Yeah. The reverberations of that very evil movement. Well, continue. how about uh, Rabbi Schneerson? Well, Schneerson was a great man, but well, I'll get into that. a great man, but oh, absolutely. he the Messiah. That's fine, but he was a great, he was not... I mean, Shabtai Zvi claimed messiahship by perverting the Torah, by uh -huh. engaging in every kind of sin and every kind of immorality he could think of. And then he said, this is the proof. I mean, as bizarre as this sounds, that's... It's bizarre, <clears throat> right? Yeah, I mean, that was his, his messianic idea. I mean, having well, orgies was his idea of a messianic idea, eating pork in front of the Torah at, on, on Shabbos. That was his messiahship. It's horrible. Like Jim Jones, uh, a yeah. similar kind of thing to Jim That's Jones. right. It was very similar. That's a great example. But the problem with, with Shabtai Zvi is that he came around at a time when the Jewish people were susceptible to the idea of a messiah. There had just been the tragedy of the, the attack by um, Ukrainian nationalist Bogdan Shamalniki, who, mm -hmm. who, murder, who murdered 100,000 Jews. In the, in the Pale of Settlement. And there was a lot of questioning of faith and questioning of God. And he came around. It was kind of a craze. He was like a rock star. He was, he was very Dionysian. He would travel around like the Rolling Stones. Um, and, you know, and then, of course, in 1666, he arrived in Constantinople with the idea of taking over the Ottoman Empire and declaring the Messianic Era. And he met with the Sultan, Mehmet II, who said, if you're the Messiah, then I'm going to take this, this bow and arrow, I'm going to shoot it through your heart, and you'll be able to live. Or you can denounce your Messiahship, and I won't shoot the arrow. And he <laughs> denounced his Messiahship, and he converted to Islam. Yes, and everybody amazing. thought that was the end of it, and 95 98% of Jews around the world were horrified and mortified that they had followed this man, and there was a great deal of hand-wringing at the time. But a remnant of people continued to follow him. And they also converted to Islam, secretly maintaining their Judaism. And then they shifted back and forth, and they, they were known as the Sabadians. And that this constituted a rot inside of Judaism. And Judaism in the 17th century, in the 18th century really, underwent a civil war between the Sabadians and the true rabbis. It's a story that really needs to be told. There should be a book about it. I may write it at some point. But this is the war that continues to go on. 
inside well, of the well, Jewish soul. There's no question. Now, as far as, I just want to also mention, that as far as Menachem Schneerson is concerned, he did a lot to restore Judaism after the Holocaust. I mean, he set up Chabad um, minions all over the world. I mean, you could go to any part of the world and you're going to find a Chabad minion. They were true to the Torah. They were true to the Talmud. They were true to the moral and ethical precepts of the Torah. And they put back some moral uh, content into Judaism at a time when when the faith had reached a, a very low point right after the Holocaust. So I don't think that, I don't personally believe that he was the Messiah, but I do think that he was somewhat of a messianic figure, and I honor that. So, I mean, that's a whole different story. The absolute polar opposite of the Shabadian movement. Yeah, well, you know, uh, seeing that we're talking about Messiah, uh, you know, in the New Testament, uh, Yeshua, Jesus, says, I came unto my own, and my own received me not. Now, the from a Christian perspective, uh, the Jewish people rejected the very one that they had hoped for, the hope of Israel. Tikvah Israel, they, they, they rejected the hope of Israel, and they declared, we have no king but Caesar. Now, that was a politically correct statement uh, of the day. We have no king but Caesar, in order to curry favor with Pontius Pilate. Now, I have a question. Let's suppose, for, just for discussion's sake, Chuck, it, right. it's you and me, two Chucks, the most abused name in America. <laughs> they put us in roast, they put us out the window, you know, up chuck us and all that. All right. uh, but just for discussion's sake, if Yeshua was the Messiah and the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin did not recognize him then, right? what causes you to believe that the Sanhedrin currently would recognize the Messiah when he comes. Well, well, this brings up a question that I, I was going to ask you, Chuck, and that is that I had not actually heard about a reconvening of the Sanhedrin in really? Israel. I didn't know about this. Can you talk oh, a little? it's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I just I, I'm I feel I feel like I'm maybe operating in ignorance here, but. This isn't something that's been on my radar screen. I didn't realize that there had been. Who is the Sanhedrin? Who are members of it? And, and what kind? Of, where do they draw their authority? Okay, there, it's being referred to as the nascent Sanhedrin, uh, because in order for the Sanhedrin to have authority, it's not like they're elected. It's not like right. they're uh, congressmen, that kind of thing. They have to gain authority like the dollar gains authority because it's paper, it gains authority only because the people put their trust in it. Correct. So the Sanhedrin is being referred to as the nascent Sanhedrin uh, because it only gains authority as the Jewish people 
lend their authority. That's right. It is, as you say, it's like currency. It's depending on the good faith and credit of the people. Exactly. But, uh, so, I mean, where, who are these cheap. people? I mean, where do they, I mean, do they have any kind of standing amongst the Jewish people in Israel? I mean, and who are they? Are there 70 members? Do there they have a Nazi? There are 71 of these members, just like the ancient Sanhedrin. Sure. And, uh, uh, yes, they are gaining <clears throat> authority, uh, and uh, they are working. Their first goal was to lay the foundation for the rebuilding of the temple. Now, when I say foundation, I don't mean actually laying stones. They have a cornerstone uh, that has been uh, ready to be put in place now for some time through the Temple Mount Faithful. But the, the Sanhedrin has been working as a uh, almost kind of like a geopolitical religious body uh, mm -hmm. to try to set things in motion uh, for the rebuilding of the temple. That's why they sent out this letter a few years ago to 70 nations saying, the only way you will have peace on earth is if you Gentiles come along and uh, help us rebuild the temple. Because, and here's what they do, they quote, uh, I believe it's Isaiah who said, for it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. Now, here's, here's the problem, and uh, this is a wonderful conversation, because I, I gather that you're an extremely knowledgeable and sincere uh, Jewish man, and I think you gather that I uh, am somewhat knowledgeable and sincere as a Gentile uh, Christian man. Yes. So, that being the case, we can have an honest conversation, which we're doing, but the interpretation that the Sanhedrin has put on that passage in Isaiah goes like this. The temple is the house of prayer for all people. Therefore, it is the house of prayer for all religions. Therefore, if you don't help us rebuild the temple, because religions seem to divide us, we will not be able to have peace on earth. Notice, from a Christian standpoint, when Yeshua quoted that very passage and turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple, he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, from Yeshua's viewpoint, it was not, and from a Christian viewpoint, the temple was never intended to be a house of prayer for all religions because the first commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord our God is not Allah. The Lord our God is not 300 million uh, Hindu gods. The Lord our God is not uh, Zoroastrian gods. It's not that. So, uh, the Lord our God is one. It's a house of prayer for Hashem and those who believe in him. And that's and what Judaism teaches. Messiah. That's what Judaism teaches. And look, I, I, again, that's, I have not... That's not what the Sanhedrin is communicating. Well, uh, you know, look, Chuck, again, I had not heard of this Sanhedrin. I don't know who's in it. I mm. know what the conventional, traditional Sanhedrin is about, which is not what you're describing. 
Um, I don't, I've never heard my rabbi mention it. I've never heard any Jewish publication mention it. I just don't know anything about it. And I don't, you know, which tells me because I'm, I'm not, look, I'm somewhat up on Jewish issues. Right. And if I hadn't heard of this, I would think that that probably means that it's not held in any kind of regard in Jewish or Israeli circles. Now, I could be wrong, and I'm going to look into it, but I don't think that this Sanhedrin, I mean, if it's, it, uh, do they emanate out of the um, the, the faithful, uh, the Temple Mount faithful? I mean, look, first of all, if you look at the Sanhedrin of Roman times, and by the way, they didn't say Caesar is king. They said Caesar's king of Rome. Um, you know, they, they didn't give up on the idea of having a Davidic king. They just didn't think that it was the time to do it at that time because Rome was th okay, too that's powerful. A, that's a different issue. That's, yeah, that's right. That's a whole different question. And it was Jesus himself, according to the book of Matthew, who uh, said that render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and unto God that which is God, which right. actually set up the principle that was very Judaic, and it goes back to Sinai, and that is the separation of church and state. But mm -hmm. let's, that's another subject, so let's not go there. The point is that the traditional Sanhedrin of Roman times, it was an extraordinary body of men that lasted and were in session for well over 200 years, both in Palestine and in Babylonia. Mm -hmm. They were men who had attained a level of, of, of knowledge and of holiness and of faith and of qualifications that, that basically you know, qualified them to be in the Sanhedrin. And it's an amazing story of how many of them, with a few minor exceptions, like, like Palatria, who was a traitor, but how many of them actually did preserve that level of holiness. The other thing that's interesting about the Sanhedrin is that these were also, one of their qualifications to be in it was that they had to have a job. They had to have a skill. They were blacksmiths. They were farmers. And they had to have a family. They had to have a wife and children. They had to be in the world, in other words. And they right. had to be conducting themselves in the real world with real world situations while at the same time convening in this very holy hall where there would be 71 of them, the 71th being the Mazi, and they would basically deliberate on interpreting the Torah, which eventually would become the Talmud. So I don't think there's any group like that today that could even remotely... That would be like saying that we should... I mean, this is... I'm getting into an American thing, but I'm against the idea of reconvening a constitutional convention in the United States because I don't think there's anyone in this country today that has that level of understanding of the American idea and that level of patriotism as they did at the time of the American Constitutional Convention, which included people like James Madison and, and um, you know, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas sure. Jefferson and, and George Washington. There's no one around like that today. So I'm nervous and I would be against the idea of reconvening a Constitutional I Convention. I concern. And by the way, uh, for whatever it's worth, uh, you you mentioned that I am an attorney. It is true. I haven't practiced for 25 years. I, I was a trial attorney in California for 20 years. Mm -hmm. But uh, the reason I do what I do, uh, and by the way, I 
I receive no, nothing for doing these things, nothing for the nine books that I've written so far, or the one that I'm writing now called The Counterfeit Messiah. But uh, in any event, uh, I thought you needed to know, and your listeners would need to know, or it might be helpful, that uh, I felt that the Lord spoke to me back in 1992, right there in my law office, that I've been pleading the cause of men long enough, that he wanted me to plead his cause in the land as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation in America's greatest crisis hour on the near edge of the coming of Messiah. And uh, so that's what I do. Uh, we formed Save America Ministries in 1993 uh, for the rebuilding of the foundations of faith and freedom. That's well, what it's I. A, it's a great calling, and you obviously have a very strong sense of purpose, and um, and I, I can sense that, and it's 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 a great thing to see, and I admire your work, and I have a great love for Israel and for the Jewish people, and uh, a passion, I think, uh, or I would not have spent the kind of time that I have, and I think uh, Chuck, that you and your your viewers or your listeners are going to find their eyes being opened, maybe hearts being opened with this book, King of the Mountain, The Eternal Epic End Time Battle. And down here is a second subtitle, for it is said, He who rules the Temple Mount rules the world. Well, listen, it is a fascinating look, and I'm looking forward to reading it, and it has a great sweep of understanding on the geopolitical balance today. And, um, and, I, and for that reason alone, it, it looks like a great, a great read, and um, I, I admire the fact that you're making it available. Um, Chuck, let my viewers and listeners know where they could get more information about you, your ministry, and your books. Well, thank you so much. Our website is saveus.org. It's not Save USA. It's saveus.org. Uh, our books can be obtained there. I have a national radio program that's been on for 23 and a half years now, confronting the deepest issues of America's heart and home from God's eternal perspective. And uh, the book can also be available in other sources, whether it's Amazon or uh, anywhere else, King of the Mountain, The Eternal Epic End Time Battle. So uh, I really appreciate it, Chuck. My I pleasure enjoyed our conversation together. It's been a, an extraordinarily uh, serious, sincere, honest conversation, and I really appreciate and I bless you for it. And, and I bless you as well, Charles, and uh, let's do it again, and let's stay in sure. touch. Thank All right. you very much. Sounds good. All right. Well, have a great day, and thanks for watching, everybody. I shall return, God willing, at the usual time tomorrow at 12 noon Eastern Time.